Comics. Comics. Welcome to ORP, otherwise known as Omen Revelations Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Nunley. And I'm your co-host, uh, Steve Sellers. On ORP, we like to talk about geek stuff, pop culture, including movies and TV series, as well as comic books and comic characters. Uh, but that's not all, is it, Mike? No, it's not, Steve. We're also writers for Omen, Omen Comics and Revelation Comics. So we like to talk about both writing and our comics. So podcast and chill with us. Today, Steve and I are going to be talking about the dark side of sci-fi, a.k.a. sci-fi horror. There are actually a few sub-genres within the sub-genre of sci-fi horror that we're going to go over. Everything from psychological horror, aliens, tech gone wrong, to survival horror, monsters, and kaiju. Now, keep in mind that we're not going to cover all the examples within these categories. Just a few examples to give you an idea about what we're talking about. And as always, we'd love to hear from you if you have a good example of a movie that we missed or a comment on the ones we're going to go over, you can reach out to us on Twitter at Roman Omen Revelations. But before we dive into this, uh, what was, wasn't there something you wanted to add there, Steve? Uh, sure. Uh, the main thing to keep in mind with science fiction and horror is that there are two genres that fit together surprisingly well. Uh, there are a couple of reasons for this. Uh, firstly, science fiction is often about delivering warnings about the dangers of unchecked technology or what we might find in space. There are plenty of rational fears waiting out there, from the cold vacuum of space to the ways first contact with an alien species can go wrong. Uh, good sci-fi horror presents those warnings in a clear and visceral way. Uh, but the other thing to keep in mind is that horror draws on the fear of the unknown. I mean, after all, what's more unknown than space or the future? H.P. Um, Lovecraft talked about the fear of the unknown in his own writings on creating horror, and he specialized in cosmic horror. So some of these, his own stories dealt with alien encounters or alien beings that are so far removed from us that they become godlike and truly terrifying. But I don't think you have to even go that far. Uh, just exploring the unknown brings its own share of terror, like with Event Horizon or Alien. So while we might think about uh, that exploring space might be like Star Trek, it's also possible for many things to go wrong, too. And you can find some good horror stories in that. Uh, but why don't we start looking at some examples of what we mean? Sure, but, but first I have to say that's a pretty good dissection of sci-fi horror. Um, as a first example of the dark side of sci-fi, I'd like to talk about some psychological sci-fi horror films, which are typically more terrifying in your mind than they are on screen, hence the name. And, and, and even then, some can be pretty burly on screen. Uh, though, as far as the message goes, I think these show that just because we can does not mean we should. Um, I suppose Exhibit A in this case for me would be 2020's Possessor, written and directed by Brandon Cronenberg, who incidentally is the son of 1986's The Fly director, David Cronenberg. Now, 1986's The Fly is another sci-fi horror film you should check out. It is an absolute classic. But back to The Possessor from Brandon. Um, 
In the story, an agent named Tasha Voss works for a secretive organization that uses brain implant technology to inhabit other people's bodies, uh, ultimately driving them to commit assassinations for high-paying high paying, uh, clients. Tasha Voss uh, gets... Uh, Tasha Vats gets back out of the body by shooting herself in the head and severing the connection. She has to go through regular tests to make sure that she is still herself after these assassinations. And she passes these tests for the most part. But constantly pretending to be other people and all of the killing has caused Tasha Voss to disconnect, really, with everything but the killing, which she starts to do in increasingly violent and brutal ways as opposed to just shooting them like she is told. At home, she merely goes through the motions of domestic life, envisioning her latest visceral kill while she takes care of her child or has sex with her husband. All of that would have made this a big enough psychological thriller. But Possessor takes it to mind-bending levels when she doesn't kill herself after the last few times and thus doesn't fully separate from the host, which explains her focus on, on her kills and the, and the last few times. Uh, you know, she, she didn't quite disconnect, and so therefore she's still right there in that moment with that kill. The various hosts' identities begin to cross over and merge with her especially her last host and soon neither of the neither the host left alive nor her knows who is who and whose memories are whose anymore ultimately this movie makes you uh takes you on a wild ride and while there is a fair amount of gore and violence in possessor it is still more of a psychological horror in the sci-fi genre but as i mentioned before the only message i can see is that being able to do something that having the technology does not equate the right to do it or the necessary morality to do it properly uh yes ian malcolm's uh, famous warning in jurassic park now um i only saw possessor recently and it gets pretty bizarre and freaky um brandon krogerberg i have to say clearly learned a lot from his dad and how to make a film um now while we've seen body switches in film before like face off um i like how possessor really deals with the logical consequences of that kind of technology because the problem is that when you've jumped into enough people, the lines blur as to your identity. What is you and what is the host? Uh, memories get confused between different people, as, as you pointed out. Um, and this is especially true when you're dealing with very different life experiences in a shared body. But then you add in Voss's growing addiction to blood and violence, and it becomes even more complicated and messed up. This is a deeply damaged woman to begin with, and her body hopping into these host bodies only makes her even more unhinged. Um, I have felt bad for Colin, the host body, who basically has his life destroyed by Voss as she cruelly takes advantage of what he has in his life and then kills everyone he cares about. This is also a film uh, that deals with corporate espionage and assassination, with Voss being used as a pawn by some pretty awful people that are running the company. Um, there is also another angle that is a bit frightening. In this world, anyone you know could be a host for a corporate assassin who wants you dead. I doubt even the possessors themselves would ever be safe if the company wanted to silence them to protect their secrets. Um, it's a really interesting concept that opens up some real possibilities. Um, now, my only regret about this film is that I don't feel like Voss gets enough comeuppance for what she does. And in fact, she, she gets what she secretly wants all along. Um, I only see her getting bloodier and nastier at the end of this film, if I'm honest, especially without her family to hold back her violent instincts. She has truly become a monster by the end of the movie. Yeah, yeah, I think... I think that test at the end when she no longer feels remorse for killing the butterfly really spoke volumes. 
Uh, you know, when she was younger, she believed in the preciousness of life, as demonstrated by her carrying the guilt of killing that butterfly clear into her adulthood, as we see in the first test. But at the end, she feels nothing because she's completely disconnected at that point. There's actually another 2020 film uh, that hits on similar notes, and that's Black Box, which deals with taking over someone's body as well. However, this one is about bringing back a man from the dead by transferring his consciousness into the body of a brain-dead patient. However, in this case, the supposedly dead patient's consciousness still clung to his body's brain, and he and the guy trying to take over his body end up fighting each other for control and sense of identity. But like Possessor, the two men memories and identities blur together and they confuse themselves for each other. However, Black Box is a little different as it's not quite on the same mind-bending level as Possessor. There's a bit of that for sure, but I would call Black Box more of a twister. It gets you expecting one thing and then surprises you with something different that you didn't see coming. On that level, Black Box is, is really good and falls in line with that whole should-be-forbidden technology thing. I had a few what-the-fuck moments while watching it and I loved that. Uh, but I know you have another example of a psychological sci-fi horror that you wanted to talk about, Steve. Uh, for sure. Although I will say that Black Box sounds a lot like Ar Altered Carbon, and that's a win for me. Um, now, there is one film I can mention here, though. You could also argue it belongs in Science Gone Wrong, and that is Event Horizon. Um, the basic idea behind Event Horizon is that it's the shining in space, and it centers on the idea of a haunted ship and the corruption of its creator. It also takes influence from earlier films like uh, Disney's The Black Hole. However, Event Horizon is a story that evolves quite noticeably from its roots uh, to the point where it be works best as a psychological horror. You know, I, I love that description, The Shining in Space. That That is a great way to describe that. And I would have to agree that while their tech did more than they had hoped for and, and even for the worse it was really just a means of getting them to that place where the psychological horror begins and that's really the main crux of the movie so I agree 100% that Event Horizon fits this category. Right it's just a means to an end in this case um, now the story of Event Horizon uh, centers around a rescue ship called the Lewis and Clark which is sent to recover a ship that was lost years ago that lost ship turns out to be the Event Horizon, which was sent as part of a class, uh, classified assignment. The Event Horizon was the first attempt at a faster-than-light gravity drive, which travels long distances by folding space. Now, what the crew doesn't know is that the Event Horizon brought something evil back with it, a malevolent force that has taken over the ship. The beauty of Event Horizon, though, is that it plays with the heads of its main characters, driving them to their destruction. Um, the gravity drive can cause hallucinations, so we never know how much of what we see is real and how much is the ship playing games with the crew. So we see the captain, uh, played by Lawrence Fishburne, uh, dealing with guilt over the death of a crewman he abandoned to his death. Um, we see the doctor struggling with leaving behind her child on Earth to join the mission. But most of all, we see the ship tempting Dr. Weir, the, the creator of the Event Horizon, with the memories of his dead wife and promises of showing him the universe. At the same time, the movie makes you doubt wh what you're seeing through most of the film. So the, fil the film is messing with the viewer as much as it's messing with the characters. Um, I'll also add that this cast is outstanding, including the likes of Lawrence Fishburne, uh, Sam Neill, Jason Isaacs, uh, Jolie Richardson, and uh, Sean Pertwee, who is the son of the third Doctor. Um, it's probably my favorite sci-fi horror film after the original Alien. I love the ending on Event Horizon 2 when, when you realize that, that, that there's a whole new group of people now trapped on the Event Horizon as those doors close behind them. I mean, that's something that, that 
film actually has in common with the possessor it just it just leaves you with that feeling of dread oh absolutely i mean by the end of the film you realize that the survivors have brought hell back with them it's never openly stated but when you consider the consequences one thing becomes clear to me if they make it back to earth the world is probably doomed and that makes for a very unsettling film absolutely hell is coming to earth not from below but from above you know that now that I think about it, that that's actually a bit of a scientific spin on the apocalypse with what you're talking about there. Uh, but I think we've covered the basics of psychological horror and sci-fi. So let's move on to the next subgenre of sci-fi horror, what I call extraterrestrial horror. But I feel like I should clarify exactly what I mean by extraterrestrial horror. You might think that. That's just horror about aliens. But in truth, not not all movies about aliens are horror, like Independence Day, for instance. For that matter, some movies with aliens aren't even considered science fiction. Pennywise from Stephen King's It is an alien, for instance, and nobody considers it a sci-fi horror. Although, <laughs> I'd be lying if I if I didn't try to use that angle to get a couple of people to watch it. <laughs> but I digress. <laughs> yeah, true. I mean, Stephen King just took some elements from 50s B-movies, but... Pennywise could have just been just about anything, really. I mean, mostly we think of him as an evil clown, even if he's revealed to be something else. I mean, sometimes you can include aliens in a story where it's not hugely important that the character is an alien. I mean, Superman is an alien, but most Superman stories aren't really about Kal-El, alien from Krypton. They're typically about Clark Kent, who's a man raised by human parents who just want to help people. He just happens to be an alien from Krypton, but that's not what the story is usually about, unless it deals with space. Although you do get some interesting horror takes like Brightburn, where an evil version of Superman is portrayed as the monster in the film. But that's the exception and not the rule. You know, I, I still have to see Brightburn. I'm kind of missing out on that one. Um, good point, actually, uh, about that. And, and building on that, it, it takes a little extra something to make a movie about aliens or alien invasion a horror movie. I think one of the greatest examples of that has to be the 2013 sci-fi horror Dark Skies. Now, Dark Skies plays the first half of the movie like a paranormal activity story. Uh, first, we see everything from the kitchen was stacked in strange configurations in the living room, and Sammy, the youngest boy, says that the Sandman did it, which was rather creepy. Then on another night, all eight of the sensors on the house's alarm system are triggered at the exact same time. Not long after, younger boy, the younger boy Sammy pisses himself at the park as he stares off into the distance and then starts screaming at the top of his lungs. The intensity is slowly growing in the film as three different flocks of birds all fly into the Barrett family's home and kill themselves. Then the sci-fi twist comes in when the mother Lacey, who is totally freaked out by this, finds signs during a search online to suggest that their family might have been chosen by aliens. While the father, Daniel, doesn't know what's going on, aliens just sounds too crazy. However, he does install six cameras around the house, and on one night he is found outside in the backyard with his mouth agape and a frozen look of terror on his face as he stares off into the night sky. Again, very creepy. When he sees the footage of himself getting up out of bed and walking out into the backyard, he admits something really weird is going on. But it's not until going over the footage the next day that Daniel discovers three humanoid-shaped figures standing over their beds as they slept on the camera. 
see what I mean about the major paranormal activity vibes there? They, they basically say that these supposed hauntings, demons or whatever, are actually alien encounters. I, I really like that they gave a science fiction twist to the supernatural and paranormal. And it's that little something extra I was talking about that pushes this alien invasion story into a realm of horror. Yeah, that actually reminds me a little bit of the glitches in the Matrix that we see. So it's kind of like giving that supernatural element to the to the sci-fi horror, which is cool. Um, now, I will say I had mixed feelings about Dark Skies, but that's mainly due to the pacing. I mean, this movie takes a long time to set things up and gradually ratchet up the tension along the way. And there are just points where it just struggled to keep my interest. Um, but I will say that when the movie does get to the point, there are some really interesting ideas here. Uh, I do agree with you on the Paranormal Activity vibe, and I was honestly thinking of Paranormal Activity 2 when the father starts recording everything in the house on security cameras. Um, the idea of the aliens messing with the family while the community is in denial about it is also really interesting. Um, looking at it now, um, I think that this movie tries to be a 90-minute Twilight Zone episode, uh, if that makes sense. Now, while I love that show, I mean, I feel like that format works better at half-hour installments. Um, the last half hour or so is where the movie really started to land for me, finally. Um, J.K. Simmons, who is great in the one big scene he gets, uh, comes on to make sense of things, and then the bait-and-switch twist with the alien going after the older boy. Um, I also like the really freaky ending with the implication that this kid is alive somewhere and being uh, tortured by the aliens. It, it's not a bad film. Just I would say that's no, just not so much for me, but I think there's another example of alien horror that might work just a little bit better, Mike. Uh, why don't we get into that one? Sure, Steve. Another example I would give for extraterrestrial horror would be Signs from 2002 by M. Night Shyamalan. While Dark Skies employed the paranormal and supernatural to make it horror, Signs blended psychological horror to give it that extra edge. Granted, Signs is by far our most mild example in the alien invasion horror genre, but one that deserves a mention for its Hitchcockian directing style, which is showing us just enough to get the real horror to happen in the viewer's mind, in the cinema of the mind, as it were. And, and that is definitely what Shyamalan was going for. He said so himself. You get to see the terrified reactions of the characters, and for most, and for most of the movie, you only get to see a shadowed figure, you know, a foot or a hand of the the actual alien in one scene you're only you actually get the the reaction uh, of the alien on the tv just the reflection of the alien on the on the tv screen and then there's just one time we get a full look at the alien uh and it's just it's really bad footage uh, somewhat blurry image yeah uh Shyamalan is a filmmaker in the hitchcock and the rod serling school and, and he wears those influences on his sleeve I think you see that pretty well with signs. Um, now, there's a Twilight episode called The Invaders, where you see a woman being attacked by these tiny aliens that an invader rule home. You, you, you see a lot of those techniques uh, there to build tension. And I feel like Shyamalan took some cues from that episode as, as well as uh, he did from Hitchcock. And that's why the, hitch, the scenes of the family running through the cornfields is so tight and tense. Uh, there's a constant scent of confusion uh, throughout the film because of the way it's shot. Uh, while I think Shyamalan can sometimes go a little bit overboard with that style, uh, with Signs, I think he got it down really well. I have to agree. Knight nailed it on Signs. And, and it's for that reason and the film's discussion on fate that makes Signs one of my favorite Shyamalan films after Unbreakable. But let's get into the story itself. 
Science focuses on a formal Episcopal priest named Graham Hess, whose two children, asthmatic preteen son Morgan and young daughter Bo, discover a series of crop circles in his cornfield that turn out to be navigational markings left by extraterrestrials. Add to this discovery that on the night on the night before, Graham and his brother Merrill had seen what they thought was a kid from the neighborhood pulling a prank, and they tried to chase him down, but whoever or whatever it was moved very quickly and got up to their roof, a two-story house, in a second or two. Uh, it kind of freaks out the family, and Graham decides to just pretend like none of it happened and even went radio and TV silent to avoid hearing anything about it. However, after seeing one of the legs of seeing the leg of one of the aliens in his cornfield walking away and <laughs> running <laughs> really, really fast like a scared little girl, uh, Graham and his younger brother Merrill and the kids turn on the news to find out that the other crop circles have appeared around the world and lights from invisible objects hover over over well above 100 cities. People around the world are terrified and believe there's an alien invasion happening. The invasion is confirmed when news footage from the child's birthday party emerges actually showing one of the aliens. And this image confirms to Graham that the leg he saw in the cornfield was in fact one of the aliens. It all culminated on the night the aliens attempted to take the places around the crop circles by force using hand-to-hand -hand combat and lethal, lethal gas they shot from their wrists. Graham Merrill and the kids barricade themselves in the basement to hide them, hide as the aliens try to get them from all sides. And this is really where the, the horror and the sci-fi takes over. Oh, for sure. Uh, one thing I need to point out is that so much of the tension in this film is built into the pacing. The film that first makes you doubt what the family sees and whether we're really dealing with aliens, which I think is uh, Shyamalan's point here. Uh, the belief in the aliens tends to echo Graham's belief in God, uh, starting from a place of skepticism and then gradually accepting the crazy situation that's happening over time. It's the kind of pacing you don't see from a lot of modern filmmakers who just love to throw things at you to keep the film moving. But Shyamalan makes you stop and think about what you're seeing, and he uses the pacing to reinforce the themes he's aiming for. Uh, when M. Night is on his game, he can really make a great film that way. I do love it when a film gets my mind involved and isn't just spoon feeding it to me. And, and Signs totally had, had you guessing and questioning the whole time. But it's also covered some real topics like family, faith, forgiveness, fear, hysteria, and alien invasion. But I think its biggest message is got to be fate. Whether you are like the ex-reverend Graham Hess who sees the misunderstood and the unexplainable or signs as it were, and it strikes fear in your heart because you believe we are all in, all on our own, or whether you're like Merrill who sees those events as miracles and they fill him with hope, there is a clear message being given here that all things are connected. The good, the bad, the mundane, and seemingly insignificant all work together as interconnected pieces of a larger puzzle. This becomes clear by every moment in their lives having a purpose, even bad things like Morgan's asthma, odd things like Bo leaving glasses of water all over the house because she always thinks there's something wrong with the water, or seemingly random things like Graham's wife's last words, swing away. True. Uh, so much of Graham's struggle has been coming to terms with the death of his wife and renewing his faith as a minister. The film makes it clear that things happen the way they do for a reason, even if it's not clear why at first. But Graham understands what is most important to him, which is his family. And the ordeal the family goes through gives him a clarity he doesn't have before. Um, he is blessed because of what he has rather than being cursed because of what he's lost. 
the symbolism of the glass of water uh, takes on a different meaning, with Graham seeing it as half full instead of half empty by the end of the film. Um, Shyamalan tends to include visual elements very deliberately, including colors, so I have to think there was a point behind that beyond just for a plot purpose. But um, let's look at a less conventional example of an alien film. Um, Annihilation from 2012 is a somewhat difficult one to classify because it has elements of extraterrestrial and psychological horror. Still, as the main cause of what happens is alien influence, I think I'll mainly discuss it as an alien film, even if it does things very differently. I'll say this up front. This film is extremely weird, and it doesn't explain every single thing it does. Now, um, Annihilation focuses on the character of Lena, who is played by Natalie Portman, who is a soldier-turned-biology professor, um, and her husband mysteriously returns from a secret mission. When it's clear that something's wrong with her husband, um, they're both taken in by a secret agency that eventually recruits Lena. We find out that a meteorite crashed near a lighthouse, and this creates a zone called the Shimmer, which is manipulating the DNA of anything caught inside the field and making the wildlife there hostile. So an all-female group of experts is sent inside the Shimmer to reach the lighthouse and find out why this is happening. Uh, Lena volunteers for the mission because she thinks she can use what she finds inside to save her husband. Now, uh, the majority of the film deals with Lena and her unit ex exploring the Shimmer and finding traces of, of where Lena's husband went. Along the way, there's also psychological horror as the Shimmer starts affecting the people who go inside. Uh, we see that the previous team basically killed each other. Uh, Lena keeps some secrets from her team, and that ends up creating rifts that lead to bad things happening later. Um, there's also a really creepy scene where one team member dies, and the only hint of what we have of what happens to her is a rampaging bear that is screaming in the dead person's voice. It is a creepy and unsettling scene to watch. Oh, it really is. But I do like that they do that the, it was creepy because of scientific curiosity. There was some there was clearly some kind of bonding process with the bear using her verse w voice which which actually speaks of assimilation to me and not digestion. I think that taps into the fear of losing one's sense of self, like we talked about with Possessor and Black Box. And in that way, I can definitely see what you're talking about with the psychological horror. You're left, you're left wondering what actually happened. Exactly. Um, this movie plays on the fear of losing one's humanity by losing the biological definition of what it is to be human. Uh, assimilation is the right word, as we see that the alien presence is changing biology by inserting bits and pieces of DNA to create new forms of life. But it also plays on what that does to your mind as well. Um, I'll also add that the film leaves it ambiguous as to whether Lena truly makes it back at all. Uh, there's a weird ending that is a bit reminiscent of 2001, where Lena reaches the lighthouse and en encounters the aliens there. While she's there, she fights a mirror of herself that gradually becomes a doppelganger of Lena. Since the entire movie is Lena telling the story in flashbacks from her perspective, it's never clear who made it back through to the lighthouse from the lighthouse. Lena or the alien doppelganger. It's implied that she might be the doppelganger, and it's confirmed that the husband that made it back was also an alien doppelganger, so they might both be aliens. If I were to guess, I think what happened is that the aliens wanted a way to survive on Earth, and they're manipulating biology until they can find a form that works for them. But it's never made clear exactly what they're doing, and you have to read a lot into this movie to make sense of it. I think that's a pretty good theory, actually. It reminds me of Av in Avatar, how the humans combine their DNA with the DNA of the Navi to better interact with them, but, you know, in reverse. So so that's totally a plausible theory to me. And, and as to the ambiguity, uh, I think that one of the hallmark, 
hallmarks of horror is being left with an unsettling feeling. And maybe that's what they were going for. I suppose it could also be like we talked about with Blade Runner. They just want us sitting around and talking about it. But you talked about science fiction having some kind of message to it in many cases. What what do you suppose the message of Annihilation was? Uh, don't judge a book by its cover? Hmm. I think they're exploring the question of how much humanity is dependent on biology and whether we remain human if we change what we physically are. Uh, the aliens are gradually becoming more human while the humans who go into the shimmer are becoming more alien. Are the doppelgangers really aliens by the time they fully adapted to their new identities or have they become human in fact? I mean, it's a really fascinating question and Annihilation gives you a lot to think about by the last frame. It certainly does, and, and that's a much better theory than I had. It seems like there's a lot of that exploration of definition in sci-fi. What is real? Uh, what is it to be human? Who has a soul and who doesn't? Science fiction is a great genre to talk about that, and sci-fi horror takes you to the darkest edges to find out. The next subgenre we want to talk about it again ties into the idea of having the ability to do something does not equate to having the necessarily necessary morality required to do it properly. Of course, we're talking about the science or tech, the science or tech gone wrong uh, category. My first example for this is 2000s. Uh, Hollow Man starring Kevin Bacon, Elizabeth Shue and Josh Brolin. Now, in my opinion, Hollow Man is a special effects wonder and was brilliantly acted, if nothing else. Sebastian Kane is a brilliant scientist that clearly has massive skills in a lot of areas, like a polymath. He developed a serum for the military that can turn someone invisible through quantum phase shifting, a very painful process. But there's some interesting things about this serum. A gorilla that took that serum started to go mad after almost two weeks of being invisible, and Sebastian was invisible for much longer. There's some question as to whether the serum itself even causes mental instability. Add to this that Dr. Kane was basically unable to see while he was invisible because even with his eyes closed, he can see through them. We're not really told whether it's being invisible for too long, the serum, sleep deprivation, or, or if deep down Sebastian Kane is just a sick fuck. But one thing is for certain, he apparently he's apparently only morally bound by whether or not people know what he's doing. So getting caught is his only conviction. We find this out rather quickly because once invisible, he molests a coworker while she's sleeping, and not long before his be it's not long before his behavior gets darker and more violent, escalating escalating to brutally killing a dog, raping his neighbor, which if you think about it, it must have been quite horrifying for her, not even being able to see who was attacking her, and soon even killing multiple people. Uh, he says, it, it's amazing what you can do when you don't have to look at yourself in the mirror anymore. He talks about the power uh, invisibility gives him to do whatever he wants without anyone knowing, and, and how he just can't give that up. I think the scariest thing about Hollow Man is the question of just what holds people back, uh, what 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 holds people in check as far as right or wrong. I, I bet there are more folks out there that are only held back because of a fear of punishment. You know, what would people do if if they could get away with it? If just that, I, I don't know. That just scares the hell out of me. Uh, but now that now that you've heard about Hollow Man, uh, I have a question for you, Steve. Uh, considering it was inspired by H.G. Wells' novel *The Invisible Man* from 1897 and its 1933 film adaptation, how does Sebastian Kane stack up against the original *Invisible Man*? Just just how dark did they go? Now, see, here's the thing: *The Invisible Man* is a truly evil character to begin with, and then he just gets worse from there. 
H.G. Uh, Wells always intended the original Griffin to be sociopathic and terrible. Uh, he steals money from his own father, which then leads the father to commit suicide. And Griffin feels absolutely no remorse about it. He burns down the building that he's staying in because his landlord got too close to his experiments. And then he becomes more and more mentally unstable the longer he stays invisible, eventually coming to despise uh, normal humanity as his behavior starts catching up with him. Um, now, the Invisible Man from uh, film from 1933 takes elements from Wells, but the approach is pretty different. Um, he's less of a horror villain there and probably closer to a supervillain. Uh, the Claude Rains version of Griffin, uh, who is uh, called Jack Griffin in the film, doesn't start off as a bad guy, but he becomes a villain because the drugs that turn him invisible. Um, Griffin takes a substance called monocaine as part of the invisibility formula, but he doesn't realize that the drug causes mental instability. So gradually, he starts off just looking for a way to reverse the formula, but when people refuse to leave him alone, uh, Griffin abandons that idea and just goes a full-on supervillain. Uh, he robs banks, derails trains, and sets out to create terror in the people of London. Um, his partner, Kemp, betrays him, uh, a point taken from that was taken from the book, and then Griffin murders him. But this version of Griffin plays it smarter, and aside from the murder of Kemp, uh, Griffin is more interested in causing chaos and in making people fear him than he is in wanton brutality. Uh, Reigns plays this character extremely well, even though we only see his face on screen for less than a minute. He's so good, in fact, that he inspired uh, Mark Hamill's version of the Joker. I did not know that. Uh, that's that's pretty cool, actually, and, and it certainly paints a picture. Oh, yeah, you can definitely see where Hamill got some of his ideas, and Claude Rains is an amazing actor anyway. Um, now, later versions move away from Reigns, and I think that's for the best. Um, I honestly don't see any problem with the way that Hollow Man did it. And it seems like they go closer to Wells' intention than the 33 film did. Um, they definitely borrowed just the right things from Wells, uh, modernizing the story while keeping the spirit of it recognizable. Uh, yes, uh, Sebastian Kane should be that evil. I mean, he does worse things than even Griffin, but I actually don't have a problem with that. I, I think it makes sense that being invisible would make him more of a monster. And the idea that he can't sleep because of invisibility is a neat touch that explains a lot of things. Um, the mental instability uh, comes from Wells, but the idea that it might, might be partly caused by the sleep deprivation problem works for that version. Um, I think that the Invisible Man, whether we're talking about Kane or Griffin, has always been a detestable scumbag. But the effects of the invisibility process on top of having the power to commit crimes with impunity makes him even worse. It's the old adage about how absolute power corrupts absolutely. And this guy was already corrupt to start with. I mean, give somebody like Griffin a taste of it, and he's going to become an irredeemable monster in no time at all. I can agree with all of that. But I would add that it also forces the viewer to ask themselves what their morality is truly based on and how far they could go themselves, given the right circumstances. The films obviously takes takes these thoughts to extremes. But I think that fear of what could happen, of going too far, is real. I can't help but think of Batman's fear of killing, pushing him over the edge, and not being able to come back from who he would become. But that's from the perspective of good people. But it seems like with The Invisible Man, we're, we're not always talking about someone who started out as good, are we, Steve? Right. It depends on which version we're talking about. Now, the uh, 2021 version of Griffin is an out-and-out -out scumbag from start to finish. I mean, the new Invisible Man is, is also true to the basic concept uh, with a different twist on it. Now, uh, the film was created, uh, was directed by uh, Lee Wannell, who is a longtime partner and fellow film student of James Wan. Uh, you'd, probably, you'd probably know him best from his appearance in Saw. Um, the 2021 Invisible Man uh, gives us a different take on Griffin. He's an expert in the field of optics, and he finds a way to turn himself invisible. 
But in this version, he's portrayed as an abusive stalker who's trying to psychologically destroy Cecilia, his ex-wife that left him. Uh, so he fakes his death, sneaks inside the place that his ex-wife is staying, and then he gradually tries to destroy her, her relationships and her life. He gets into her computer and writes this horrific email to her sister to try to drive a wedge between them. He secretly drugs the ex-wife to, to sabotage her job interview. And because uh, Adrian is legally dead and she's so badly traumatized by the abuse, nobody believes Cecilia when she insists that he's alive and stalking her. This version of Griffin is monstrous, but what makes him truly awful in this version is how smart and vicious he is in exploiting people's psychological weaknesses. It doesn't even matter if the invisibility process affects his mental state because Adrian Griffin was an abusive sociopath from the beginning anyway. This man abused and terrified his own brother to the point he sympathizes with Cecilia. But I think we've uh, what we've seen with all these versions is that Griffin is both very clever and an extremely nasty customer, and that makes him a, a very compelling horror villain. I think you're right about that. I also think that the Invisible Man is an example of how tech can go wrong because of the human factor, and he has earned his place among the classic monsters for a reason. And speaking of classic monsters, the next movie I want to bring up is the science tech gone wrong category is about zombies uh, with the scientific twist. And that's, of course, Resident Evil. It's more of an action sci-fi horror, but it's centered around forbidden science and the consequences of trying to play God even with the safest of intentions. The story basically goes like this. A half mile below Raccoon City, the Umbrella Corporation has a huge R&D bioengineering facility known as the Hive, full of 500 scientists, researchers, and support staff. A thief named Spence Parks steals the mutating T-virus the Hive has been creating and testing to sell to the highest bidder. As he's walking out, Spence contaminates the hive with the T-virus by throwing one of the tubes back into the room and breaking it open. To contain the leak, the AI that controls the hive, called the Red Queen, has sealed all of the entrances and exits and killed everyone inside to ensure that the T-virus doesn't reach the surface. The Red Queen also sends nerve gas up to the mansion that acts as a secret that the mansion that acts as a secret entrance to the hive, which knocks out Alice, who is in the house. Alice is an Umbrella Corporation security operative, but when the gas knocks her out, her memory is lost and she forgets all of that for a time. Meanwhile, back at the hive, the T-virus reanimates hundreds of scientists, researchers, and support staff, and the animals, transforming the humans into ravenous zombies and the animals into highly aggressive mutants. A team of commandos that works for the Umbrella Corporation like Alice, must penetrate the Red Queen's defenses, take back control of the Hive, and re-secure the mansion that poses as a secret entrance to the Hive in order to isolate the T-virus before it overwhelms humanity. But the Red Queen kills most of the team by either directly attacking them or unleashing zomb zombies and horrible mutants like the liquor on them. As the team attempts to escape the hive, an umbrella test subject, a huge monster called the Licker, escapes and pursues the team onto a train, which they use to leave the hive. During this pursuit, two members of the group are killed, leaving Alice and Matt. However, Matt obtains a deep deeply scratched arm from the liquor in the start of the attack. When Alice and Matt reach the surface, Matt and Alice are separated and taken by an umbrella hazmat unit, where Matt begins to genetically transform. Alice awakens from the coma to a ravaged raccoon city after the T-virus outbreak. Huh. I mean, I haven't watched uh, much of the Resident Evil films, though. I am somewhat familiar with the games they're based on. 
Now, the games are less uh, action-oriented and more atmospheric. Uh, the idea is that you're exploring these very spooky settings, like haunted houses or abandoned police buildings, while trying to stay away from the zombies or other monsters that are trying to kill you. Uh, from what I could tell, the movies lean more into hard action and away from the atmospheric horror that the games typically have done. But I guess if you have Mila Jovovich, you might just as well give her a bunch of guns and let her start shooting. <laughs> to be fair, though, it seems like they took the basics of the Resident Evil concept and just changed the angle of the story while keeping the backstory, you know, more or less intact. Uh, if you want an action horror series, that sounds reasonable enough as an approach. Um, if I was a real fan of the games, I might take issue with it. But since I'm not, I can honestly live with it. I think based on playing the first game that the suspense horror that was a major factor in the game might not have translated as well on the screen. Part of the fear uh, in, in playing that game was because you were controlling the character. I think that taking the action angle was a good idea and a unique take on the, on the genre of on the zombie genre of films. And actually Resident Evil is the perfect bridge into our next category. And that is science fiction monsters and survival horror. Now, we're going to be covering these franchises in greater detail in the future, um, but I, I, I don't feel like I can bring up the category of sci-fi monsters and survival horror without mentioning the classic Alien and Predator franchises, which add in elements of a haunted house type of stories and even action, as they, but, but they still fit very nicely into this category. Oh, true. Um, like you, I don't want to get too much into Alien or Predator right now, since I expect we'll talk more about them later, but they're both iconic monsters for a good reason. I mean, they both tap into very different kinds of fears, and they both work. Uh, with the Xenomorph, it partly plays on the fear of the unknown, and also the fear of being physically violated by force. You could also look at the Alien as an outbreak of a disease, and the fear of disease, which takes on new life when looking at it from a post-pandemic perspective. Um, the idea of going to some new place and being infected by this thing that will eventually kill you is a pretty scary one. You really nailed all the key points there. Uh, but I will add that part of this is also the fact that the xenomorphs are not just hyper-aggressive, but also highly intelligent. They kill both for the sake of killing and for calculated purposes. Uh, savage and intelligent is a very scary combo. Definitely. Uh, the xenomorphs are just about survival and procreation, and they'll do whatever is necessary to accomplish that. Now, the Predator plays on a different idea, which is the idea that maybe we're not at the top of the food chain like we think we are. That humans might find ourselves to be hunted in the way that we hunt other animals. The Predator represents the idea of this apex predator, uh, an animal that represents a superior hunter with more smarts, technology, and better fighting instincts. Um, there's a classic short story called The Most Dangerous Game that revolves around humans hunting and killing other humans for sport. The, the Predator kind of does the same thing, except the hunter is an alien who comes to Earth to hunt humans. So it's a, both about uh, the hunter-killer instinct that makes people into monsters, and about the question of whether humanity really is the apex predator that we make ourselves out to be, and what happens if we're not. It's a scary question if you really think about it. Um, I'm sure we'll have more to say about that when we get to Predator, but I think it's a really fascinating idea for a science fiction monster film. I definitely have a lot more to say about predators and xenomorphs, <laughs> but I, I will comment on what you said about humans hunting humans and other life forms for sport uh, and the predators. Um, I think one thing that terrifies humans uh, is being dealt the same savagery and coldness that they're capable of dishing out. Uh, but let's move on uh, to movies we can actually talk about. <laughs> You know, I do like the idea of atomic energy and radiation creating kaiju like Godzilla. That has a very nice science-sounding base to it. 
The original Cloverfield Cloverfield uh, film from 2008 was based uh, was was billed as a, an American kaiju f- movie for all intents and purposes, and and that's actually kind of how it played out. But solely on that movie, I'm I'm not sure that Cloverfield is a science fiction. But when you get to the third movie in the franchise, the Cloverfield Paradox, the first film takes on a whole new light, and that's why it's here on this list and why it's the only movie in this episode that required a second film. To to explain it and add the science fiction to the horror. <laughs> and boy, does Cloverfield Paradox get into science. We find out that in the future, the entire world is falling into a literally dark dystopia as they struggle and war over energy sources, food, clothing, and shelter. Several countries have sent a person up to a space station called the Cloverfield with a massive particle accelerator more powerful than any that has ever been built before. And they are attempting to find a source of renewable energy from it. However, their particle accelerator is actually so powerful that it's not just smashing together fundamental particles from our dimension, but from other dimensions as well. They mentioned the Higgs boson specifically as what was smashed, which means they're dealing with fundamental building blocks of the universe at a particle level. I mean, the thing that actually gives mass to the particles, essentially getting at the root of the two universes by smashing two of these bosons together. As these conflicting and interdimensional bosons cannot occupy the same space at the same time as ours. It causes a tear and distortion in the fabric of space-time itself. Well, this did give the power, did give them the power they wanted. They got more than they bargained for, and it overloaded their system, and by way of quantum entanglement, put them in another universe, which they had to get back from. But the damage was already done across space-time. They opened up another dimension and unleashed the kaiju we saw attacking New York in the first close Cloverfield film. Cloverfield film. I can talk, really. But not just in their present Earth, but past Earth and the future one as well, which, of course, explains Cloverfield and puts a much more sophisticated backstory to J.J. Abrams' American Kaiju. Well, there's a reason that uh, quantum mechanics is often referred to as spooky action from a distance. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, As much as I hate to admit this, though, uh, I tried to watch Cloverfield a few times and I just couldn't get into it. Um, Not because of anything to do with the story necessarily. I just had a really hard time with the way the film does the found footage style. And I typically like films like the first few paranormal activity films. But with Cloverfield, I just felt very uncomfortable with the shaky cam and it was just hard for me to sit through. But I keep hearing that they do some crazy things with this series. They do some crazy things for sure, but I think that ultimately the series suffered the curse of J.J. Abrams and that it started off with one thing that is a brilliant idea and you want more of it, but it goes into an entirely different place in the second film and tried to make the best of bringing it all together in the third movie. As examples of this curse, we all know how Lost and Star Wars turned out. In my opinion, you really only need to watch Cloverfield and the Cloverfield Paradox, and you can totally skip 10 Cloverfield name Lane. Uh, but I believe you had another sci-fi monster horror to talk about, Steve. Sure. So let's talk a bit about Pitch Black, which is very much a space monster film in the vein of Alien. But it's a monster movie that is set on an alien planet with a group of people trying to figure out a way to survive long enough to get off. The, pitch, the story of Pitch Black is fairly straightforward. Um, a transport ship uh, crashes on a desert world, and the survivors are looking for a way off the planet. So you get a ragtag group that includes a ship pilot of Carolyn Fry, uh, an imam and his disciples, a uh, merchant and his wife, a kid traveling alone, uh, a bounty hunter named Johns, and an infamous criminal named Richard B. Riddick. 
Not everyone in the group is trustworthy, and many of them have secrets that they're keeping from each other. At the same time, there's also a secret on the planet itself. It's the home to a nest of insect-like alien monsters that only come out at night. But when the planet night cycle starts, the survivors have to get off the planet while fending off the creatures. Uh, Pitch Black is a really interesting film in that it started off as a rejected draft to Alien 3, but then it evolved into its own franchise. Um, David Toohey uh, wrote a draft of Alien 3 uh, that was largely rejected, but he recycled elements of that script. Uh, those elements were mixed into a story that was pitched to him uh, that was called Nightfall. If you think of the monsters of uh, Pitch Black as Xenomorphs, uh, Carolyn Fry as Ripley, uh, Johns as Burke, and Riddick as one of the convicts from Alien 3, you, you can see it all fits together pretty well. I did not know that, but that actually does make a lot of sense. I know from watching the making of Doc uh, for uh, Pitch Black that they had to do uh, they had to take great strides to avoid any similarities to xenomorphs, and that's why they're so insect-like. But I did not know about the Alien Three connection. That is pretty interesting and makes a lot of sense. Oh, very much so. At, at the same time, Pitch Black is distinctive and interesting enough to stand out as its own film. Uh, one reason for this is that the monsters are different from the xenomorphs. And they're really well thought out. In fact, the whole planet is really well thought out. Uh, they can't operate out in the light, so they're forced to live underground until nightfall. Uh, they're more definitively an insect species, and we see how they swarm around their victims. And I think the way the bugs operate off of a primal fear, uh, the fear of the dark, as well as the fear of the unknown, really make them work as monsters in a sci-fi horror film. The other thing that stands out is Riddick himself, and he is a great action hero. Uh, Riddick is in many ways a monster himself, also representing the fear of the dark. But Riddick lives in the dark, representing his own inner darkness, and yet he's not completely out of the light either. He's a compelling anti-hero that operates by his own rules, and part of the fear of the movie is that nagging doubt about whether Riddick can be trusted. At the same time, there's the hope that he'll make the right choice all the way to the end, a hope that Riddick ultimately validates. Uh, he rides the line between hero and monster all the way until the last moment, and that gives the film some really great tension. I think adding elements like Riddick to a survival horror really make the fear complete as there are enemies without and within. I, I can't help but think of the Metallica line from Enter Sandman. I'm the beast under your bed, in your closet and in your head. You know, nowhere is safe. Even among others, you are ultimately alone in that scenario. This type of all-encompassing danger is played out in another sci-fi survival horror called Cube, where several characters are trapped inside a giant cube filled with thousands of booby-trapped rooms that rotate around and make it almost impossible to navigate their way out of. But it turns out their biggest problem is a sadistic and abusive control freak of a cop who starts attacking and killing people to maintain his illusion of control. Hmm, I'll be honest, my first thought when I watched Cube is that it reminded me a bit of Saw, uh, even though Cube came out first. Uh, it's a movie about a random group of people who find out that they've been kidnapped and imprisoned in this torture maze, where people die in these gruesome traps. From there, they have to overcome their own distrust of each other to find out, uh, to find a way out in one piece, very Saw-like. But here it's a bit different in that uh, you don't have a jigsaw who's orchestrating everything for a purpose. Uh, it's a mundane thing made by a bureaucracy that operates by rules that aren't initially clear. Uh, as I watched it though, I got more and more the feeling that cube, the cube is basically hell, where people bring their own darkness in with them. That set the cube apart for me, and that's where it got more interesting. Uh, this film mostly had me, uh, at least until the end, where the murderous cop magically manages to show up for a last-second villainous <laughs> comeback. The problem is that this is flat-out impossible. There's no way he should have been able to follow the group without two math geniuses to navigate and avoid the traps 
much less follow them up to the bridge without having been in the original room. I absolutely hated that last scene, especially since two major characters died that absolutely should not have died the way they, they did. But up until that point, they had something really good going with Cube. I really ended up enjoying it for the most part. Um, apparently, there are a couple other Cube films after this, so I may check those out. You know, there are. But while Cube 3 does fill in some of the blanks about the people who made it and are using the Cube, it's really only good for that. Um, like, you watch it once, and, and that's that's going to be about good for you. Um, the secret. The, the really good sequel in this series is Cube 2 Hypercube. I would recommend that one as it dives deep into quantum physics and some hardcore mathematics. Also, I think you'll find the ending more satisfying than you did the first one because I agree that the cops showing up at the end was really not possible at all and really only served to add that final scare horror films are so famous for. Oh, right. Uh, I, I agree that they were aiming for a Michael Myers moment, except this guy isn't exactly Michael Myers. <laughs> now, I am looking forward to checking out Hypercube, though. Uh, hopefully that one did it better. But uh, for a counterpoint, let's look at another classic of survival horror. Um, when you're talking about survival horror, it's hard not to bring up John Carpenter's version of The Thing. Uh, John Carpenter is one of my favorite directors, although, as we've discussed with Halloween, we have very different tastes in Carpenter <laughs> films. But interestingly enough, I think Mike and I agree on this one. We certainly do. The Thing is a flat-out classic sci-fi survival horror that leaves you on the edge of your seat guessing who the killer is the whole time. It's it, just a great movie. Awesome. So let's uh, get into some background details on The Thing. Um, John Carpenter was a huge fan of director Howard Hawks, and Hawks was a huge influence on Carpenter. Uh, Carpenter's first film, uh, Assault on Precinct 13, was actually a modern remake of Hawks' Western film Rio Bravo. But this wouldn't be the last time John Carpenter decided to do a remake of a film by his favorite director. His most successful was The Thing, which was a remake of uh, how of Hawks's uh, The Thing from Another World. The, the amazing thing is that um, more people probably know the Carpenter version now, and a lot of people probably don't even know it's a remake. I, I think you're right about that. I, I actually never heard anyone mention the original from the 1951. Oh, <laughs> and it's yeah, and it's totally understandable since uh, Carpenter perfected the formula. Uh, the thing takes place on an, an American research station down in Antarctica. Um, a Norwegian helicopter is chasing down a dog in the middle of the ice, at least until the dog runs into the American researchers. The dog gets away and the researchers take him in, not realizing that the dog is in fact the thing. As an aside, I must say that Jed, the dog who plays the thing, is one of the best things in this movie. Jed is one of the best dog actors I have ever seen, and in a cast that includes Kurt Russell, Wolford Brimley, and Keith David, that any dog can keep up with those guys is pretty impressive. Uh, now, the thing, as it turns out, is an alien shapeshifter from another planet that can perfectly mimic anyone. Uh, the thing had already wiped out the Norwegian base, and as we find out later, the Norwegians had discovered the alien when it crashed. You know, they totally trick you there with that dog at the beginning. Now, granted, I'm a huge dog lover, but you kind of feel for that dog and wonder what the hell is going on. They basically made a Trojan horse out of the dog for both the characters in the movie and for the audience. <laughs> yes, they totally take advantage of all dog lovers, including me. And uh, But it's perfect. And Jed the dog totally sells the innocence of, of, of the creature until we see what he really is, at which point he looks really creepy. I, I'm amazed that they managed to pull that off. From there, the, the thing systematically starts killing and replacing people. Even by the end, and most of them are dead, you can't be certain which of the last survivors might really be the thing. The beauty is that the film never tells you. 
The reason the thing is such a great monster is that he plays so well on paranoia and suspicion. The thing could be virtually anyone, and there's no reliable way to draw him out or, or tell him from, from a human. You can't even rely on the people around him, that, around you, to help you because any of them could be the thing. The, the isolation of the setting uh, and the paranoid feeling that any of them could be the monster really makes this one of Carpenter's most beloved films. Now, this was the first of uh, John Carpenter's Apocalypse Trilogy films, uh, along with uh, In the Mouth of Madness and Prince of Darkness, and all three are great. But The Thing is the best known and the most beloved of them. Right, right. You know, <laughs> paranoia and isolation can wreak havoc on a mind surrounded by danger. You can't even talk yourself down because there there really is a threat that could be anywhere. It's like the old saying goes, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they aren't out to get you. And the thing uses that perfectly. Uh, but that actually about wraps up our discussion on the dark side of sci-fi and its various subgenres. But if you think we missed one or you'd like to put your two cents in on the discussion, we'd love to hear from you. But before we go, I want to take this moment to thank our patrons who make this podcast possible. I hope you've had fun hanging out with us today on ORP. I know that Steve and I have had fun making this episode. If you've had fun too, we invite you to share this episode and help us get the word out. For our Spotify listeners, we ask you to please rate our show as well. That can really help to grow our audience. But to all our listeners everywhere, we want to say thank you for listening and we'll see you in two weeks.